Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yordana Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Kitubot, daf Ayin Dalid, page 74. So 74 opens with ongoing discussion of conditional betrothal, marriage, etc. And there are some, let's call them unorthodox ways in the conventional sense of unorthodox, unorthodox ways that this betrothal is taking place, right? Meaning anytime, we haven't learned it yet, but when we get to Kiddushin, we'll understand that there are certain um, different ways that a betrothal can be brought into effect. Um, and the way we do it nowadays, the most common way is we call it, it's one of the options there is kesef, right? That it's with money. What does it mean with money? So we do it nowadays, let's say you, you get married, you get betrothed really technically at a at a wedding. It's done at a wedding, but we've talked about this, right? It's really, it used to be done in advance with the ring, meaning the wedding ring is given as it has to be worth a certain amount. It has to be defined as worth a certain amount. And that's kind of become classic. These are the opposite of classic. Amar of Ula, I'm really only going to focus on one of them, but still, Amar Rav Amar Rav Ula Bar Abba, Amar Ula, Amar Rabbi Elazar. Okay, so we have a bunch of people here. Ula Bar Abba said that Ula said, right? So this is all, sounds very much all in the family. I'm not, you know, that's why it struck me. That's why I stumbled over his name, because Ula is known to be one of these great sages who didn't actually have smicha, so he doesn't have a Rav or a Rebbe in front of his name, except for Rav Ula Bar Abba does. Um, so he said that Ula said, the Rebbe Lazar said, that when Hamakadesh b'milve uva'al al-tanai uva'al b'pachot mishavapruta uva'al divrekol tzricha emenu get. We have a case here where the betrothal took place as follows. Prior to the betrothal, there was a loan that was given between, it's not even, you don't even have to know who gave it, but what happens is that the, I, I guess what happens is that the, the, Man gives had lent the woman money, right? And now instead of giving, instead of her paying her him back, he's going to give her the the joy, the satisfaction, the the actual money of not being required to paying him back, right? So that um, the loan forgiveness is um, the way he's going to betroth her. Okay, if that makes sense, right? That there's there's something of value to her in that, in that the loan is being forgiven, and therefore, you know, the presumption here is that they'll get to they'll get betrothed that way. The problem is that it doesn't actually work, but they seem not to know that. And this is, you know, big discussion in Masachet Kedushin. We'll talk it more, talk much more about it when we get there. But so what happens is they're officially betrothed, and then it seems that Baal they sleep together, right? Um, and then, likewise, the Gemara goes on to say, or there was a condition, and the condition was not fulfilled, but they didn't know that the condition was not fulfilled. And again, they sleep together, meaning it's a different case. But the point being that any time that you think you've gotten betrothed, that the couple thinks they've gotten betrothed, but they haven't really, but they think they have, and then they sleep together, which seems to be an acceptable thing for a betrothed couple to have done, at least as far as this Gemara is concerned, um, which might be surprising in and of itself. So then the Gemara goes on to say that, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there's one more case. If the betrothal with, was with less than the value of a pruta, what's called sheva pruta, as I said, you know, the idea that you're going to get married, that you're going to, I'm sorry, betrothed by virtue of a transaction using a certain amount of 
money, kesef, and nowadays we do that with a wedding ring, but it should be called a betrothal ring, but that has to be of a certain value, namely at least the value of a pruta. A pruta is a very small, negligible amount of money, a quarter, 50 cents. I don't know exactly what the worth of it is. Nowadays, they do figure these things out, but it's not, it's not whopping, it's not a whopping sum. But so what does he do? He's betrothed her with something that they don't realize is worth less than a shavapruta. And therefore, then when they sleep together, so each of these cases, the betrothal, they thought it was going to be um, effective betrothal, but it didn't work. So in all of these cases, what happens? In each of these cases, even though the betrothal didn't work, and usually we would think if the betrothal didn't work, it never kicked in, they would not need a get. But because they've slept together, and they've slept together as a couple that is on the way to being married fully, right? So then the the presumption here is that that act of intercourse itself functioned to betroth them. And therefore, if they want to not be betrothed after all, um, then they need a divorce. Now, what's interesting to us about this, perhaps, is just how formal the act of betrothal really was, right? Meaning, on the one hand, it's not so binding if it if the things don't carry out. If you have a condition and it's not borne out, it's nothing, except for the fact that if you then use that to, as testimony to the fact that you're then going to get married, and in this case, the couple would end up sleeping together, then, then at the end of the day, that itself, the act of sleeping together becomes their betrothal, and now... It's so now it's really formal, meaning now to separate, they need a divorce. So I, I feel like I feel like it's a very short passage here, but it I think highlights for us uh, a good many things about the nature of of Erusin, about betrothal in the context both of where where nothing happened, where you could say nothing happened, but also on the other hand, you need to get. Right. So I think this is actually going to end up being a Masachic Kedushan discussion because without introducing what we're going to learn in Masachic Kedushan, which is that there's basically three ways to enact Kedushan, right? Um, and uh, and maybe just explain what those three are. So, so, yeah, meaning I started saying Kesef, that means money, and it has to be of a certain value. The other two ways that are listed in the mission there on the first mission of Kedushan, and of course we'll talk about it then, one is bia, bia meaning uh, marital intimacy, sexual relations between the not yet husband and not yet wife, right? Meaning they are to be betrothed through that act. Or star, where there's actually a written document, which is not the ketubah, obviously, but it's a written document that confirms betrothal. And for that, I kind of think of like, I don't know, the kings and queens of France and Spain and England back in the day, you know, the 1500s or 1400s or whatever right. and you would have a formal document a formal signing and you could have a baby right being now betrothed to an old man for the sake of i don't know peace between the countries or something right but it's a really I, formal I, decree right i think what's happening here is is that it's sort of showing like if there was an issue with like one method of how you wanted to enact the, the marriage but then ultimately you sort of trumped it with bia bia trumps everything like Okay, it's you had marriage because you did it with the intention of Kedushan. And you've negated all your conditions. Right, and you negated all your conditions, and therefore then you would need it again. So it, it does it does make sense. Um, and and the, guess- one other thing, the one other thing it does is it prevents um, that sexual intimacy from being promiscuity. 
right? I can imagine otherwise we'd have everybody saying, all right, I'm going to make some wacko condition. So we're not really going to be betrothed. Then we'll sleep together and then we'll go our merry ways. Right. right and the exactly. answer is no, we're not going to, Chazal, the sieges, halacha, that doesn't, that does not fly. There needs to be some gravitas once it comes to sexual intimacy when it's in the context of marriage. You don't just say, you, they don't want there to be a loophole that allows for promiscuity. Right. I, and, and, and the same way that we saw before that they also go under the assumption that no one, uh, you know, on yesterday's staff, that nobody goes into this wanting to be promiscuous as well. Um, I'm going to move on to an interesting passage on Ahmed Bat. And, uh, it, you know, we're again discussing this idea that if a man does, you know, betroths a woman with a condition that she has no nadarim on her, no vows for her to fulfill, and then he finds out that there is one, right? Tanu Rabbanan, right? The rabbi, let's say she then goes to a halachic authority to basically find out, is there a way Maybe, by the way, she said the neder, you know, some exception that the halachic authority could basically come and say, you know what, you actually are not bound by that neder, right, Mikudesha, then they're considered to be, uh, then she's considered to be betrothed, right? Um, then let's say we take the case where he betrothed her on the condition that she didn't have any blemishes, no mumim, and she does have one, right? Let's say she goes to a doctor and he heals her of that blemish, right? She is still not betrothed, right? So it's interesting that there's a difference. If if, if the neder case can be solved halakhically, like they can absolve her from the neder, she's considered mikudeshed. But if a doctor heals her from her blemish, that condition still does not take hold. So I love this question, obviously, because I'm a doctor, right? What's the difference between a chacham and a doctor? The Chacham, right, the authority uproots the vow retroactively. It's like she never had the nether at all. She was never bound to it at all. But the doctor only heals her, right? So in other words, it's just from that point on after the healing, she doesn't have that blemish, but before she did have the healing. So when she did enter into the marriage, that blemish did actually exist. Whereas what the Chacham was able to do is to say, you thought that neder existed when you entered into Gedushin, but actually that neder never existed. And then the Gemara wants to raise a question on this. Bahatanya, they bring a brisa, right? Right. And so this brisa seems to say that if the halachic authority, the chacham, dissolves her vow, or the doctor heals her blemish, she's still not mikudesha. Right? So this price seems to contradict what we just talked before. I'm a rabbi, low kasha. It's not a kasha. Hav Rabbi Meir, Hav Rabbi Eliezer. One is the opinion of Rabbi Meir, one is the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. Hav Rabbi Meir, to Amar Adamar, it says, Shatit Bazet, Ishto Bibetin. Hav Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer, to Amar, Ena Damar, it says, Shatit Bazet, Ishto Bibetin. So Rabbi Meir, right? So th- this price, which says, that if it was dissolved by a chacham, she is still, uh, you know, it, she's still mikudesha. That's the first one that I read. This has to be Ravi Mayer says, uh, a man is basically willing to even go to the court, right, to have his wife degraded. It's not considered to be nice to take her to court in order for the vow to be dissolved. So if he's willing to do that and the vow, get, and the vow gets dissolved, okay, we'll let her be mikudesha. But this price that we just said here, which says that even in the case of the Chacham, she would not be Mikudeshet, 
This is the opinion of Rabbi Elazar, who said that a man wouldn't be willing to degrade his wife. And therefore, even if she goes to a authority, to the Chacham, and he dissolves her vow, this solution isn't acceptable to the husband because he didn't want her to do that to begin with. And so therefore, she's still not considered to be uh, and so then the Gemara is going to go on to try to figure out what exactly is the, you know, my, he, like, what's the actual machlokas? Did not right? So this is a Mishnah in Gittin that if somebody divorces his wife because of a vow that she took, and then she basically, you know, she, it, and, and she, so in other words, uh, you know, she takes a vow. And then, you know, and he divorces her because of this vow. And then, you know, that she took this, he regrets his decision and wants to take her back. He's actually not allowed to remarry her. Also, if he divorces her because she had a bad reputation, he's also not allowed to remarry her. Because, you know, this is because if he was allowed to take her back, if the vow was dissolved by a logic authority, or let's say discovering that these rumors about her were, were false, he might say then then he never would have divorced her. And so then this kind of like, it makes the get a little bit like not, you know, not valid, but, you know, and, and if she were to get married to somebody else, it, it just causes a lot of issues. And there's a, there's an issue about Mamzerus here. So therefore what we say is, is that if he divorced her, it doesn't make a difference if the circuit, you know, like it doesn't make a difference. It, it, even if the circumstances change, he would not be allowed to uh, remarry her. Rabbi Yehuda says, right, any vow that's known by many people, right, and that you can't nullify it, okay, that's the case where it's lo yachzir. Lo rabim yachzir. But if it was really private between the two of them, he could actually take her back. Rabbi Meir is of the opinion that if you needed the chacham, Right, the husband couldn't nullify it himself, and she needed a halachic authority to do it. Um, then he's not allowed to remarry her because he can claim that had he known the vow would be dissolved, he never would have divorced her, and therefore it undermines the get itself. Right, um, and right uh, But if it didn't need the chakirat chacham, then he can take her back because then we're not worried. Rabbi Elazar holds in all cases he's not allowed to take her back. Right? He explains his opinion as being they prohibited remarrying this woman, right, who is bound to the vow that requires, you know, the, the chacham, right? It, it, the, the chacham is due, it's only due to a vow that does not require investigation. So, in other words, what he's saying is, it, it, we're just, they made it usher, but we're just going to say it's sort of usher and all, you know, low us, low us through, right? They, they, they wanted to prohibit it just in the case of a woman who, you know, needed the chacham, but they basically just made it all, they made it all usher, right? And then the Gemara is going to go on to explain a little bit more uh, what, what the reason is, and that's going to get onto tomorrow's stuff. So we'll wait until then. Um, but we sort of set the question up today. But it just this whole, you know, it's a very interesting thing of like, okay, let's say you're able to get her out of the nedar, right? Either in the case of, of, of Kedushan or that he actually gave her a divorce. You see that there's this hesitancy to sort of like, even if the circumstances change, 
it's not so easy to let somebody who made a definitive decision, particularly one of divorce, to sort of retroactively go back and be like, oh, I wouldn't have actually divorced her. Here, what we're landing here with this machlokas, this three-way machlokas of Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Elazar is they want to protect the integrity of the get, basically. Like, that's really what the machlokas is over. Yeah, it's important and it's interesting, and we're going to see a whole lot more of this and the solutions for it on tomorrow's stuff. Right. We're going to understand everybody's reasoning tomorrow. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Bring us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.